When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you? Good. Thought I lost you there for a second. And also, Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? I'm just doing well, thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Today we're super Good. excited. We've got uh, Bill Gibson, legendary drummer from the Bay Area, from Huey Lewis and the News, amongst others. Bill began playing at a very young age, and we're going to get into that and talk to him about his history uh, growing up as a drummer. Um, eventually, he became a member of various bands um, that eventually wound up being Huey Lewis and the News. Since the band's inception, Huey Lewis and the News have sold over 30 million albums and had 19 top 10 hits. Amazing songs that really, I mean, that stand the test of time. You're hard-pressed from the 80s to find a rock band where you still turn on the radio. It sounds as fresh today as it did then. The Power of Love, If This Is It, Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, Stuck With You, Hit to Be Square, The Heart of Rock and Roll. Did I already say that one? I think I did. Working for a living and many more. Their music earned them Grammy nominations, Academy Awards, many, many accolades, and they were a staple in MTV in the 80s and 90s. Bill was also a part of USA for Africa's We Are the World single, which we'll get into that. And in, 2000, or in 2020, uh, the band released their latest album, Long Awaited, and it's called Weather, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Bill Gibson. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Bill, it's great to have you here. So your father was uh quote unquote a frustrated jazz drummer i guess and he uh took you to a lot of jazz festivals and he raised you on the great jazz drummers like our blakey and buddy rich some of my favorite guys too and uh and then i like the story that i heard he took you to see the dave clark five and he said that's just hammering nails you can do that well from age 14 to 20 you practice six hours a day i mean I did the same thing when I got in college and when I got really serious, but to be that devoted in your high school days, 
That's that takes incredible focus and tenacity. Can you take us back to those formative years up to the origins of Huey Lewis in the news when you all quit your day jobs and Huey stopped delivering yogurt? Uh, sure. <laughs> That's a that, that actually covers a long time, but right. I'll, I'll make it sure. I'll give you the clue. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know the whole it. story, man. Well, uh, yeah, my dad was a architect by trade, but he was a music lover and he was a frustrated drummer. So he bought me my kit, my first kit when I, well, I'll go back a little bit before that. When I was in the fourth grade, I wanted to play saxophone. I would, I, I would watch Lawrence Welk show on Sunday afternoon and I saw the sax section and I went, that is smooth, man. I love that. So I wanted to be a sax player. So I went to my high school, my, my elementary school. I was in the fourth grade. I went to my elementary school band director and said, I want to play saxophone. So he gave me a clarinet and said, this is the same mouthpiece. You have to learn this mouthpiece to play saxophone. So I took this clarinet and all my, and I was like, man, this ain't no saxophone, you know, this is kind of weird. So, so I did, so I kind of, it kind of put me off it a little bit. And then right around that time, my dad said, well, hey, listen, you know, check this drummer out. So he, he played me some Art Blakey and the jazz messengers. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I, I went, oh yeah, well, that's, that's pretty cool. And then he played me some buddy rich and I went, oh, now that's cool. And now he starts playing me Sonny Payne with Duke Ellington, Rufus Jones with Count Basie, you know, uh, um, Philly Joe Jones, uh, all these old great jazz drummers. And I, and then I, my eyes kind of went, oh, there's, I like that, you know? So, uh. And then he bought me a drum set when I was 14. And uh, it, he, he didn't care if I got into it. He At least he'd have a kit to play on, right? So he and I kind of shared the kit there for a, for a while through my um, high school years. And I graduated from high school. I was, I was 16 when I graduated from high school. So I, uh, I, was, I was young and um, I started college when I was 16. And I was out of college by the time I was 19. So um, I, I was young for all this stuff. But I played, but I did. I literally would skip class in college and come home and play the drums for about six hours a day. I did that for those six years. And uh, I play along to records. You know, I played a Blood, Sweat and Tears and, and uh, Hendrix and Cream and, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff, Chicago. Danny Seraphine, I, I play along to all that stuff. And, um, and then I said, then I wasn't really playing in a band or uh, uh, with other musicians at that time. And then I met when I was, let's see, when I was 18, well, I had a, no, I had a little local neighborhood band and we played these, you know, the Sausalito women's club, you know, we played gigs like that dances. And, uh, and then when I was eight, when I was eighteen, I met uh, Mario Cipollina, bass player, who was uh, founding one of the founding members of Huey and the News. He was uh, his brother was John Cipollina, who played with Quicksilver, Quicksilver Messenger Service. And uh, so I got to be, I was very close to the Cipollina family, and I I, I um, would go up to Mario's house, who. who uh, his parents' house, and his mom was a classical pianist. She taught lessons. She was a classical pianist, and her first husband was uh, this uh, very famous classical pianist, Jose Iturbi. And she she was married to him, and then she, he passed away, I believe. And he married. She married Gino Cipollina, who's an Italian dude from Genoa, Italy. And that was John and um, Mario, and Mario's sister Mike, and and Antonia, their their father. And I would go up there and on any given night at the Cipollina house, there was, this is like 1968, 67, 68, 69. There would be, uh, Jerry Garcia would be there. Jeff Beck would be there when he was in town. Mickey Waller, his drummer, Nicky Hopkins, Pete Sears would be there. Oh, just the local guys. Jim Fielder, um, 
bass player in Blood, Sweat, and Tears lived right down the street. He was there. He would be there, and we'd jam. We just we'd all jam. We'd all take turns. Be like a big round table jam session that would go all night. And uh, so that's kind of how I, I learned how to play with other musicians. You know. Wow. And how and, old were you during that time? I was 18, 17, wow. 18. Jeez. Yeah. That's awesome. And, yeah. Um, and then uh, I met Mickey Hart, who would come up, who, who would come up to, well, the, the band that Mario and I put together was a band with a, another guitar player, Dan Shalek, and a keyboard player, Greg Gavin. And now, uh, uh, we were called Soundhole, and we went to we 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 had kind of these ins through John and on in that circle the the dead and Quicksilver and the the airplane and all that stuff. We kind of had these ins to get opening gigs and and our first we wanted to and we were writing our own material at that point and we um we had we wanted to record a single so. Uh, through Dan Healy, who was the Grateful Dead sound guy, we went up to Mickey Hart's ranch um, here in Nevada, where I live now. I live about five minutes from where we did our first single back in 70. And we went to Mickey's ranch and uh, he had a 16 track uh, studio there and we, we recorded our first single there. And then Mickey and I kind of hit it off and he would come up. I was still living at my parents' house. I, 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 I I lived at my folks' house till I was 22 years old. They were that cool. <laughs> they let me stick around. So I, I, I lived there for a long time. And, um, and you know, that I was playing. I said, I don't, I want to quit college. I don't want to, I want to play music for a living. And then, then my mom was just going, oh, my God, no, what's, you know, this is, this is awful. Are you sure? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, 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 I and we kind of had this blind faith. We all had this blind faith that somehow we were going to be successful doing this. And uh, so Mickey and I kind of hit it off and he, he would come up and pick me up at my parents' house. Now here comes, picture this, 1970, Mickey Hart, it comes driving up my parents' driveway in his Porsche coming to take their, uh, well, let's see, 70, I was 19, coming to take their 19-year-old kid away, you know, the drummer from the dead. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest drug-using band in the world. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And here's Mickey coming to pick me up and take me away for <laughs> the next 10 hours. Yeah, just when your mom thought it couldn't get any worse, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's but, great. But, but Mickey is, is, I don't know if you've ever delved into Mickey's deal. Mickey was rudiment champion or not, or his parents were rudiment champions from the state of New York. And Mickey picked up on all that. And Mickey is brilliant that way. You'd never know it by watching him play, but he is just brilliant with rudiments. So he would come take me up to his studio and we'd sit and play drums hours, hours on end. And so that really kind of, that was my uh, introduction to the rudiments. I never took any private. I never took any private lessons. That's cool. That's yeah. wow. What a story. Jeez. Yeah. That's super. So cool. uh, got to be real close with Mick and he, he, he's um, yeah. To this day, I watch him play and I go, God, you never know that that guy was brilliant with the rudiments. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Right. No. I mean, I had a great teacher too. I, I started out doing that stuff. So I mean, that gave me the technique that everything else was built on. But that's really neat that you did get that from him. That's fantastic. Yeah. He yeah. seems like a sweet guy. I met him a couple of times, but, uh, and he was always very kind, but seems very, uh, like a really good person. Yeah, he is. He's a good guy. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a good guy. Um, a lot of people, I mean, a, a lot of people in the music industry kind of put a bad rap on, on the dead, you know? And, um, I don't know. It's 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 certainly an acquired I'm taste. Ready to say that, but you know, I, I have all, I have all the respect in the world for the, for those guys. I've got a question for you, real quick. So you know, uh, it seems like we've talked to some other guys from the Bay Area, just being a music fan in general. But it seems like there is a lot of support and camaraderie amongst various genres of musicians in that area. And the only other place that I feel like in the history of rock where you 
you hear that is maybe the Seattle scene in the, in the early 90s and those bands were so tied together. Am I right about that? Because it doesn't seem ultra competitive with you guys in that area, whereas other cities, it kind of seems like they were kind of, you know, at each other's heels a little more. No, it, it was it was not competitive. Mm. It, that that was the cool thing about it. You know, it was it was all styles of music. I, I mean, at the Fillmore, you could go see. I remember one show I saw was uh, the Jeff Beck Group with Rod Stewart. No, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was with Rod Stewart. That was the first Jeff Beck Group with Rod Stewart. I, I'm thinking about an earlier show that I saw at the Fillmore was the Yardbirds. Oh, with Jimmy Page and, and Beck. Oh, both mm -hmm. of them playing it. That's awesome. And uh, it was the Yardbirds. Um. Cecil Taylor Quintet, wow. and uh, who was it? Who else was it? The Loading Zone. I don't know if you've ever I heard of the, the name, Zone. but I'm, I'm not familiar with their music. Loading Zone was a local uh, Bay Area R&B group, horn group with Linda Tillery was their singer. She's a fa fabulous female singer. Hmm. Uh, R&B group. So there you have avant-garde jazz. You got R&B with a horn section, and you got Jeff Beck right. and the Yardbirds. It's just, and that was the way it was every weekend at the Fillmore. And, and that I, I tell people that yeah, my, my college was actually the Fillmore University because I was there every weekend. I have to ask you then, I'm finally going to put this record out that Hugh has done the artwork. I produced this record 11 years ago for Moby Grape. First time I ever saw two, two amplifiers wide together was Moby Grape. They had uh, Jerry Miller had two twin reverbs on on folding chairs <laughs> on stage and, and they were <laughs> wide together. And my buddy, my buddy and I look at each other and he was a good, my friend was a guitar player and we'd go and we'd get our, we were, our nose were on the stage like this. Uh -huh. You know, we were right there. I did the same with Cream when they recorded live at the yeah. Fillmore. I was there. Oh, wow. I, I was there that night, both nights. Uh, you know, traffic. And, and I, I, we'd be there with our nose on the stage like that. Right. Wow. And so I, I saw everybody, everybody. And Moby Grape was one of my favorites. I love those guys. You've come a long way from Dave Clark. Let's just put it that oh, way. Oh, yeah. yeah. No kidding. That was 1964. I was 13 years old when I saw that show. Yeah. And I read somewhere you saw the Beatles twice, yeah? Twice, I did, yeah. Where at? Uh, the Cow Palace for, in San Francisco was the first time in 1965. And I was at their last show ever at Candlestick Park in 60. Okay. Wow. You were there. Nice. How cool is that? My parents were so cool. They take my, my sister is a year older than I was. And she was loved the Beach Boys and the Beatles. She was a huge Beatles fan. And, she, and, and my parents were so cool. They'd take us kids to, to the gigs, you know, nice. which was, uh, I mean, I had friends who, who they'd ask their parents to take them to, to the gigs and their parents, over oh, my dead body, I'm taking you to see the Beatles. <laughs> sure. You know? But my yeah. parents, my my parents were musos. You know, I was so. lucky to have the same thing. My dad took me to see when I was in '72. I was 12 to see the Exile on Main Street, Rolling Stones tour, and uh, <laughs> the next year my mom took me to see. I told her that Alice Cooper was a girl, and I thought she was going to drop us off, but she went and only got to see five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that was the last show you went to. I was in England at the time when I was 12 in '64 and was able to watch Ready, Steady, Go and those kinds of shows. So I would see all these people. It was the equivalent on Ready, Steady, Go as, uh, as a Dick Clark uh, show. You would have all the people from Dave Clark 5 to Herman's Hermits. They would all be on weekly. So it was a fabulous time to be immersed in music there. But I did see the Stones play to about 300 people at a, th at a local theater in that year. So, But never the Beatles. I saw the Who play at Winterland, which when, oh, when, wow. when the Fillmore, Fillmore's is kind of a small place. It holds about 1,800 or 2,000 people. And one, and Bill Graham would do, started at the Fillmore. Then on the weekends, he, he'd do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday shows. Thursday and Sunday would be at the Fillmore now when things started picking up. Friday and Saturday, he'd switch them over to Winterland, which was held about 5,000 people. So I saw the who in 1967. I think it was the weekend or no, that was, it was right after the Monterey pop festival. It was like just a, a month or two after Monterey pops. They played Winterland. There was 400 people there. It was just 400 people on the floor and it was a big place with an upper balcony and everything. There was nobody in the balcony, 400 people on the floor and the who played. 
and um they smashed all their shit for you know for 400 right. people they always did yeah they That's did every great. time i saw them. About, they were in the hole until they did tommy <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think you know i'm kidding yeah so anyway that was my university so you were practicing along the records you were playing rock tunes and and were you were you playing along with some jazz music back then too oh yeah 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 i'd play i'd play along um oscar peterson was a favorite oh house. yeah and and uh it was it was just you know ed Thigpen, and and he's a master of the brushes so my dad said if you're gonna if you're gonna play the drums you have to learn how to play with brushes so here's the guy to listen to and so we so and and, and oscar was a was would be on at dinner time at my house all the time you know i i was constantly music at my house um my mom would play broadway musicals and and my dad would play jazz and uh and then when the, the kids we we'd say okay dad you got to listen to this here's this new guy named elton john and he's got this new album out and you got to listen to this because there's some good songs on it you know and so my sister would play that and the beach boys and do you still have the brush thing no because i just i i, I every once in a while i'll break them out and we and i have recorded a couple of couple of tunes um that i had to use brushes on it but i don't i'm not that technical with it you know i just i don't know i i recorded on one of chris isaac's albums and um eric jacobson was the producer and he said it was this tune i think it was called san francisco nights oh yeah like great song yeah well that's me playing on that and it's oh, cool. with it's with brushes and i had to play as light as i could and i was playing <laughs> i mean you, i was playing as light as, and and they'd stop the take and eric would come on and say can you play it a little lighter eggshell playing i call that <laughs> yeah eggshell absolutely got to I was, I was going, oh, my God, can you hear this in there? Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> I've had to do that, too. I said, you got to be shitting me. Nobody, <laughs> I can breathe down there on the microphone and be louder than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, so uh, to answer your question, no, I'm not, I'm not that good at brushes. But I'm going to have to be because um, we're talking about doing, you know, Huey's hearing is in and out. It comes and goes. So we can't really... Um, book anything so that's kind of been our our deal for the last three years and uh but he wants to do this little tour called raconteur tour where he goes out and he takes me and our bass player and our guitar player and we play very lightly play blues stuff very lightly he'll play a little harmonica and just very quiet that'd be cool for, for the fall if we could do that in the fall that'd be yeah. kind of a fun thing to do I read that uh, was kind of the first major tour that you were part of was with Van Morrison. Is that right? Yeah. So the band I start uh, I started with Mario Chiblina and Danny Shalek. Danny was murdered, unfortunately. <laughs> Another guitar player buddy of ours that uh, was is no longer with us. Um, Brian Marnell died of a from SVT and one and Soundhole guitar player. He died of an overdose and. Um, after I left SVT and, but Danny and his parents were murdered. Uh, and that's a whole another hour and a half, you know, but I won't, I won't go into that. That was a very traumatic time of my life. I was 21 at, when he was killed. Um, so the band we put together sound hole was really a good band. We, we, we were kind of an R and B thing. We had two horn players and we, we, we'd play, we wrote a lot of our own material, but when we'd play clubs, you know, we'd do the five, five sets a night, five nights a week clubs, you know, where you just play for five hours basically. And, um, that's where a lot of my chops came from. So Van lived in the area, Van lived in Fairfax and Van's road manager, who is my best friend now, Ed Ryan, and he was a long time, uh, a 20 year road manager of the Doobie Brothers as well. But Ed was Van's road manager for years and years back in the 70s. And this was 1974. And uh, Ed calls me up one night and says, Hey, Van needs a band to, to do a tour. Uh, you think you guys would be up for it? He, he heard you at the Lion Sharon. He kind of likes you. 
likes you. He'd like to see if you guys would work with him. And we were, sure. It's Van Morrison, of course. We, you know. So we went and rehearsed with Van and learned, learned um, his, a set of his stuff. Played a couple of gigs in San Francisco at um, at the club called the Orphanage and the Great American Music Hall, mm-hmm. and then we took off and we went on and went and did a little short tour with them, and wow. that, which was amazing because yeah. we were all, we were all so green, you know. Sure. And, and this is this is my first time on the road. And, so take us through, you know, after those years into the early years of Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah. Before so everything exploded. Well, let's see, Soundhole broke up in 75. In 76, I started the, um, is when I, I knew Huey. Huey and I went to the same junior high school together. He was a year ahead of me. He was in eighth grade. I was in seventh grade. But I knew who he was. And uh, um, so I always, I, I knew who he was. I didn't know, had no idea that he sang or played any instruments or anything like that. So now there's another local band who are good friends of ours named Clover. And they, um, they uh, are a really great band and we're buddies, you know, we, we play in all the same clubs and, and we're pals. And all of a sudden I get this phone call from uh, a friend of mine said, Hey, d- did you hear that Hugh Craig and, and Sean Hopper joined Clover. And I knew Sean. I'd played with Sean in high school, jamming at friends' houses and stuff like that. And uh, we were good friends. He's Sean was a founding member of Huey Lewis and the News, a keyboard player. And um, so I knew Sean, but I didn't. And I said, Hugh plays with Clover? What does he, what does he do? And he said, well, he, play, he sings and plays harmonica. I said, you're kidding me. I said, I had, I had no idea. So I went to see him. And yeah, now they're doing James Brown tunes with McPhee on pedal steel and Huey on harmonica. And they were playing all the James Brown horn lines. <laughs> but so we, you know, we, we started playing more shows together. And um, Clover took off in 76 and went to London to try and hit a big the day they land is the day the sex pistols album is oh. <laughs> and and so <laughs> country rock it's over mm-hmm. for country rock i've been turned around and come home yeah well they were there for two years they did uh, they did two records uh with mutt langer who that's that's how that's how they met mutt mm-hmm. and um and then they they've realized that it wasn't going to happen for them. They did a couple of tours, opening for Thin Lizzy and uh, uh, Leonard Skinner. I think they did another tour over there with Skinner. And uh, so then they came home and immediately broke up. And Soundhole kind of had fizzled at that point too. And we started talking about putting a band together. So we, uh, I went from Soundhole to play with Brian Marnell, our guitar Soundhole guitar player. And I split Soundhole and went to play with Jack Cassidy and Nick Buck from Hot Tuna. And um, we formed our little Jack Cassidy band. And Brian Brian was really struck by the punk scene. He wanted to be a punk. He wanted to be, you know, like the Clash. Mm -hmm. So he started writing tunes like, um, you know, like punk tunes, new wave tunes, new wave slash punk tunes. And um, we started playing this up-tempo stuff. you know, you've heard it, you know, with if you've ever heard any of SPT stuff. Sure. You heard the type of stuff we were doing. So anyways, during that time that I was playing with Jack and Brian and Nick, um, we did a tour. We went. We did a tour of the East Coast, and then we went to, to England, played around uh, London, and came back. And during that time, we started putting together a little club deal on every Monday night here in Marin County called Monday Night Live. And we had our house band, which was Huey, basically the genesis of Huey and the News. It was Huey, myself, Sean, Johnny Cola, our sax player, uh, Stu Feldman played bass, and we had kind of a rotating bass chair. Um, and we would back up local musicians. Van came in, we'd back him up. Boss Gags came in. Ricky Lee Jones came in. Tommy Johnston came in from the Doobies. And we'd, we'd back them up on whatever song they want to do. And then we'd play our stuff and we'd play our originals and, and just kind of, it was like a variety show. And it was, we had comedians and we played funny shit. We'd play the Flintstones theme, up-tempo Flintstones theme, you know, and, 
we, we just had a ball doing it and we'd play all night on Monday nights at the local club and call it Monday night live. And that uh, in 79, we, we were, we were writing so much that, um, our manager, Bob Brown came down and saw it one night and said, you guys got to do a demo tape. So he got us some free time over at the studio in San Francisco, different fur with Pat Gleason, got us, uh, uh, some free time to go over and demo five or six of our tunes, which we did. And uh, Bob started shopping it. That was 79. We did that. And in, uh, in late 79, everybody quit what we were doing at the time. I remember Sean was filming Heaven's Gate in Montana. Uh, Johnny was playing with Sly Stone in Los Angeles. Um, I was playing with SVT. Huey was running yogurt at Natural Foods Express. Uh, and Mario Cipollino was playing with uh, It's a Beautiful Day. Oh, yeah. He, here in Marin. So we, on the same day, we all went up to our manager's house, Bob, and said, okay, we're going to have a go at it. And we all quit what we were doing on the same day and started Huey Lewis in the News. And, uh, and Bob shopped our stuff around. We started doing showcases in, in um, San Francisco at clubs in San Francisco. And we went back to New York and did a bunch of showcases in New York, trying to get a record deal. And so nothing was happening. Every major label in the United States passed on us. And we did this one showcase in San Francisco at a club called the Old Waldorf. And we opened up for a band called Camper Van Beethoven. I remember the name. Yeah, we did a sh we did a show with them. Um, Terry Ellis from Chrysalis was yep. there. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, yeah, it's interesting. And he and he came backstage afterwards and says, "Right, I want to sign you." Just like that. He's so now we sign with every every American every major American label has passed. And we're kind of scratching our heads going, oh, shit, do we do we really have anything here, you know? And uh, so then now Terry Ellis comes and signs us. And uh, so now we're signed to an English label. Yeah. Chrysalis Records. And uh, we put out our first record in 1980. And it sold, you know, 20,000 copies. So nobody heard it. Nobody knows of it. And actually, um, Johnny and I... Uh, this year, uh, well, we started it last year. We're going to go back and remix that album and release it because nobody ever heard it. And it's got some really good songs on it. Cool. So, um, so we do that and um, that comes out and it's a, it's a flop. We did a little club tour, I remember. There was a lot of fun, but, um, and, and we were getting good. We, we always got good live reviews because we were a good live band. So, uh, anybody who ever came to see us said, God, you guys are great, man. You, you, you know, you really need to have a record out there. Well, we do have a record out, you know. Oh, really? I'll go get it. And so, um, 1981 now, it's 1981, and we, and we have a three album deal with Chrysalis. And we think, well, we need a hit song. We definitely need, we need to get our foot in the door somehow and we need a hit. So Mutt Langer, who's Huey's friend and, 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 and since our good friend, um, says, I got a song for you guys that you might want to do. It's called, we both believe in love. And, you know, we kind of, Huey goes, I don't know. I don't <laughs> we both believe in love. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> so Huey, Huey takes the song, gets it. We get a demo of Mutt's demo and we bring it back and we are in our rehearsal studio and we're, we think, let's see. Okay. Well, the music's okay. I think we can get it going. It's not really our style, but it sounds like a hit. Sounds like it could be a hit. So Huey, Goes home and, and a couple of days later, he comes back. He says, I got it. I, I got it. Do you believe in love? Mm. And, and so he changed the words. He changed some of the verse words around. And, um, and we go in and we, we record it for our second album, Picture This. Mm. And um, Picture This comes out. 
and I'm, we're, I'm driving down the street and my Volkswagen bug, my beat up Volkswagen bug. And do you believe in love comes on the radio? And I went, yes, you know, <laughs> yeah. Pulled over to the side yeah. of the road. And, you know, I, that song still sounds so good on the radio. I mean, all the, those hits do, but doesn't it? A, yeah, it just does, man. It's got yeah. that, it's got that sound, you know, and it's got Johnny did uh, all the background vocals on it and, mm. and double tracked him on three part double track. And it sounds huge. Uh, and, uh, and the, and the track sounds good. And Jim Gaines was the uh, engineer on that album, actually. And that, and working for a living was also on that record, right? And working for a living as, as well as hope you love me like you say you do. Right, right, right. Yep. Which was our first um, experience with Tower of Power. Mm. And they, we had them come in and put the horns right. on that. Nice. Now, that was when we met Tower of Power for the first time. That was 19, early 1982. We asked them if they'd come in and put horns on it. We, you know, I'd been a Tower of Power fan forever. Sure. Obviously, because they're amazing. And um, here comes the horn section. That's when we met them. And it, okay. they just, they were mind blowing mm -hmm. <laughs> on that track. And uh, so. I, I think it's interesting. And as a, as during the 80s, I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so much younger than all you guys. I don't mean to offend you, but I, every once in a while oh, I have to boy. brag about something, right? But I was in elementary school uh, during those years, and I was uh, actually texting with a, a, a friend of mine the other day. I had bought him for his third grade birthday. I bought him a Huey Lewis and the News poster uh, for his wall, and we were I, I still have the picture of him opening the gifts, which was pretty funny. But I just think you're hard pressed during the 80s. We all remember what the 80s was like, or, and everybody has this picture in their head. But, you know, you guys were just like you just kind of were your your own thing and and always kind of have been um i can't think it's not like with the 80s where you can say oh it was kind of a prince versus michael jackson thing and then there was this going on and there was the hair bands later on but huey lewis and the news was just the one constant thing that as the decade went on it just got a little better and a little better and a little better and bigger and bigger and bigger and somehow you guys managed to fit into the mtv scene you know this it's just I don't know. I, I, I can't think of another band like that from that era that did it the way that Huey Lewis and the News did it. And those songs are just timeless. And, I mean, they're they're, fun. and they're really not like anything else from the 80s, you know? Really yeah. Fun. Yeah. You know, MTV, yeah. What was, MTV was really big for us. Oh, that, yeah. That was really huge, you know, because they had just started we were one of the first bands that were on mtv mm -hmm. and um and we made funny videos we didn't make serious videos right you know like so some people were trying to make serious videos and mm -hmm. you know I, we we were always or the tongue, weird videos keep your right. tongue firmly implanted in your well, cheek yeah you, mm -hmm. your music shows that too you know even i mean your music's fun it's stuff that right it makes you feel good doc doc kupka from tower of power <laughs> says it best he'd come he'd come in and he he this song would be playing what what they were you know they were on the road with us for about five years the horn section top horn section and um he'd come into the room and there'd be some droll song play hit big hit but you know real serious and it's up and, he, and, he, and he'd look at he'd look at us he goes who's who's that supposed to cheer up <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we kind of always just said we're going to be we're going to be light we're going to make people smile and happy and take their minds off of their day-to-day -day bullshit well you did that and you still do it i mean that's the thing it's it's now a generation and multi-generational band i mean you know and you were the you were the anchor for all that stuff man i i had to play a lot of covers in the 80s before you know, I'm doing what I'm doing now, of course, in, in different bands. And I mean, you had to play Huey Lewis and the new songs. And I remember I, I'm, I'm a school guy, so I would try to do things quickly for me to write stuff out. And so I'd have a chart and then I could memorize that real quick instead of listening to a song over and over and over. Unless it's a Chick Corea song, I don't want to do that. I can do it this other way quicker. But your, your drum parts were always difficult because you did the coolest cymbal hits and things you wouldn't normally expect in songs. i always loved your fills. I got to ask you, a couple days off, the double bass part that comes in at certain parts. Now, is that one foot doing it? Or were you doing no. a double pedal on that? Double pedal. Okay. 
That's pretty slick because that's the one of those tempos. Because I was checking it out yesterday, going, I I can play that with one foot, and if but if I try to clop it with two, I mean, I can do a fast kind of a double bass thing with with a shuffle, but that's a pretty tricky tempo. That must yeah. that must have took a minute in the woodshed. It took a minute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. That's <laughs> we rehearsed that more than once. I'm sure you did. You're a, you're a very <laughs> a organized times. drummer. I love that. It's yeah. very organized parts. Like on Jacob Ladder is a good thing where, where, you know, you got the straight ahead part and then you break it down, dun, dun, dun. And, and just for good measure, the third bar is different. Gun, gun, gun. Very smart playing, man. So before we get into this super heyday of Huey Lewis with sports and the USA for Africa stuff. Yeah. With uh, Hugh always likes to, to delve in a little bit on the art side. And we talked a little bit about you guys impact during the eighties on the video side, which was sure was, was a huge part of, of who the band was. So I'm going to switch it over to Hugh and let him drive the ship. On sure. This. It's, it's, it's always sort of a tenuous uh, part of this conversation because some musicians are all about the music. They, they leave the artwork to the record company. they, they have little interest in, and I see from the Huey Lewis and the news covers that there's a lot of band specific covers because it was about the band. How, you know, there's so many layers to how I can ask you as an individual about music art. I mean, when you were growing up, you sounded like you were very busy practicing, um, developing your embouchure on a clarinet, whatever. Um, how, how much, how much did artwork even play into your sensibilities as a consumer, as a kid, and as a as a, a professional musician? How much did you really care about that aspect of, of what? Obviously, the videos you enjoyed because you you got to decide whether or not to make fools of yourself or be stereoso and self, but you know, precious, you know, like some people were. But on the record cover side of things. How, how did you... Uh, well, I'm one of those guys who was extremely disappointed when CDs came out because you could no longer read the damn thing. And, 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 and the artwork all of a sudden became secondary. Albums that you could hold and look and look at the artwork on and read the liner notes, that was everything to me. I would pour over albums covers which covers really spoke to you which which artwork what kind of artwork well yeah obviously sergeant peppers was fabulous and and, yeah. and uh, um um uh, beggar's banquet was great yeah the a lot of the san francisco bands the sons of champlin um mm-hmm. there's i mean i i just i just ate it up i that was that was Looking at the artwork and the and the album and reading the liner notes was just as, almost as important as the music to me back then. You got a sense of the whole band, you know. Yeah. Well, and you're I, right, and and honestly, and I mean, and you know, somebody like somebody like Hugh, I mean, as far as Rush fans go, or any of the other records that he's done, whether it's the you know 1987 White Snake album or the Def Leppard or the any of the records, I mean. You know, you're right. I mean, there's a reason why Rush fans, you know, see Hugh as that guy. It's because they read that he's a great artist, but they know the liner notes inside and out. You know, it's he's synonymous with the visual experience of that band and other bands as a result of doing what he did. But you're right. It's because in those years, it wasn't just listening. It was the full experience. It was the full experience. The artwork, the liner notes, the, the going to the store and buying it, you know, all those things. You'd actually listen to the whole yeah. record. And, but but, yeah. you, but you'd know who played what on what song, you know who produced it, you'd, you'd know where that was recorded, you, you, you'd know all that stuff. Today, these kids don't know shit. And they don't care. They don't care. <laughs> they, don't know. Yeah, yeah. they don't know anything about the artists they listen to. Zero. Mm-hmm. Some of my youngest daughter's friends don't even know what a CD is or what you would do with a CD. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, as I as I often point out, when that canvas changed from twelve inches to four and three quarter inches for the CD, I had to somehow find the cup being half full, and not not resist it. So the only upside to that I found was that you then had a lot of my clients could do a twelve, sixteen, twenty, or forty page CD booklet. But the pictures were smaller, and the and the artwork was smaller. It, it I I'd look at it and I go, yeah, that's nice, and I'd put it down. You know, it just didn't it didn't tr- translate at all. 
I never stopped designing for the 12 and 3 8 inch square. I still do that. Every once in a while I go, that's pretty busy for a, for a CD, but I don't give a shit. You know, I'm going to do it anyways. And again, a lot of my legacy artists like Rush and Dream Theater and so on, they, they now release a lot of vinyl. So yeah. it's come around. Yeah. It's come around. But yeah, so it's nice to know that artwork did matter to you. Did it, did you have much of a say and did you, did you voice your opinion during the, the album years or was that left pretty much to the. That, that was, that was usually left to Huey. Huey had an idea. He'd run it by us. We go, yeah, that's cool. Well, maybe we could do this. Or somebody would say, maybe we could do that or do another. But it was generally Huey. Huey had the vision. He's always been yeah. the, the guy with the what what he wants the band to look like and, and be like. So mid-80s, obviously, sports comes out and, um, you know, changes everything, right? I have a good story about sports. Yeah. We recorded it in um, 83. And we knew we had a good record. We went uh, after the radio. We wanted to, you know, we wanted nine radio-friendly songs. And so we, that's, we really focused it to radio. And um, Chrysalis at the time was in complete disarray. Uh, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright were, were not uh, uh, in, in good shape physically and emotionally. And, uh, it's the, and the things were kind of falling apart at Chrysalis. So we, and we owed him the record, but we didn't want to give it to him because we knew the company was in, you know, not in good shape. So we held on to the masters of, of sports. Huey had them under his bed and I was living with him at the time. I, I remember Carrie schlepping him up the steps to his house at the time and stashing him under Huey's bed. Um, and, uh, Bob work, work was, you know, told Terry and Chris that, um, look, you guys got to get your business, you know, you got to, you got to get the company together or, or else we're not giving you the record. And it was, it was pretty tense there for, for a minute. Wow. And, uh, uh, so they finally got the company sorted out and, and, you know, in, in good shape. Shape. And they, I mean, they had to change some people who worked for him, I think. And, but they got the company together and we finally gave them the masters and they put it out. And shit, the, it's a good thing we did because that, you know, that, that saved Chrysalis Records, that, that sports record. You know, then they started signing some other people that obviously helped them as well. But sure. um, it's impressive. You had the presence of mind to to make that observation about that dynamic that saved you and saved them because most musicians have just got they're hell-bent for glory they're hell-bent for being out there and they don't stop to think about those sort of dynamics so it's cool that you saw that yeah that you saw that coming yeah absolutely yeah, yeah we knew we had a good record you know we 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 knew it and uh well that's one of those records too that when you you look at it now in hindsight and you look at the track listing i was you know i'm certainly familiar with the record i had it uh, you know i had it at the time still have it now but if you look at the track listing it reads like a greatest hits man it's the heart of rock and roll heart and soul bad is bad i want a new drug walking on a thin line finally found a home if this is it you crack me up and honky tonk blues it's like geez that's just a record that's one record <laughs> volume one right there yeah, no kidding. It's just, wow. That's, it's astonishing. I mean, let, let me ask you a question. What is it, what do you think it is about that record? Was it just timing? Was it, you know, what is it that you think made that record work so well? It, well, you, you hit on it earlier. I think it's, it, it's different. It was different. It was different than Thriller. It was mm -hmm. different than Purple Rain. It was different than Madonna's Like a Virgin. It was different than right. Born in the USA. It was 1984, or any of those big records. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. It, it was unique. And also the videos for all those songs were great. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And that, that, so that, it all went like this. And, it, and the timing, it just all came together. Sure. Of course, was the second biggest selling album of 1984 behind thriller do you know that really okay it, it, more than purple rain more than like a virgin more than born in the usa really second biggest wow. selling album of 1984 yeah and then you guys uh after that was four correct yep 
which I don't know if you guys have seen this yet. I just saw it the other day. It's a uh, one of those mashup things. James Hetfield um, and, and and Hip to Be Square. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a Metallica Inner Sandman mashed up with a Hip to Be Square. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know what you thought about it, but I talked to Huey yesterday. He called. And we were talking, <laughs> and he doesn't dig it at all. Oh, yeah. He just like, God, that's just bullshit. He said, you wrote that song, and you're not even in it. It's Lars playing drums. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> and he says, and I'm not even singing. I'm just prancing around the band. That's bullshit. <laughs> Crack me up. He did not appreciate it at all. <laughs> uh, maybe they'll come out with a version two and then they'll have you and you know knowing james i'll bet he doesn't dig it at all either right i was gonna say yeah i always wonder about that kind of stuff like i wonder what the musicians really think about these yeah well you know there we were neighbors you know james lived quarter of a mile from me and you know his okay. kids went to my kids school so you know, <laughs> all those the, the metallicas they all live here well he doesn't anymore he moved to colorado but um I can't. I can't see. He's too happy about that. Right. So <laughs> I don't know. At the beginning, at the beginning of the pandemic, for whatever reason, my family and I were were laying around trying to find something to watch, and we ended up watching the documentary for USA for Africa, which I didn't even know existed. Tell tell just tell us about that day or that experience. Well, that that session started at midnight. Uh, it was after uh, the American Music Awards in 1985, I believe it was. Um, so we were all at the American Music Awards and, um, all the people in the, we are the world deal went to A&M studios. That was, a, a was an A&M in Los Angeles. And we all showed up there at about maybe 11 o'clock at night. And, um, there was a quite a bit of, you know, schmoozing and kind of just introducing yourself to people you'd never met before, you know, and in, in the big studio. And then um, um, Bob Geldof was there and he with Lionel and Michael Jackson and, uh, gave a little, got everybody on, on the little risers. We had risers, you know, uh, through like, I think there was one, two, three levels of risers for a, built for a chorus and we were going to cut the chorus first. Um, so they got everybody situated, put us where they wanted us. And then um, Lionel and Michael and Quincy gave a little speech and Bob Geldof, he gave a little speech about what it's going to, what this is for, how it's going to work, who's, who it's going to benefit and what, how we're, we're going to go about recording it. Uh, and then, and then, so Lionel was the one kind of handing out the parts. He sit at the piano and and play the part. Okay, this is this is the line we're going to sing on this pass. And so everybody'd sing the same line. Then we did we did like maybe four or five passes as a full chorus um, of di singing different things. Uh, and that you know that was maybe. That took a couple hours, as I recall, of us just kind of standing there and between takes as while they were listening and stuff, we, you know, I, the, the Jacksons were right directly in front of us. So I'm talking to Tito Jackson for a couple hours, you know, and we just talking about just like I'm talking to you, you know, and it was very, it was, it was, it was unbelievable because you just any, anywhere you looked. You just go, oh, holy shit, that's Ray Charles, you know, and, you know, yeah. and you, uh, oh, my God. And then, oh, oh shit, Harry Belafonte standing right there, you know, it was just like that all night. It, it, and for somebody like us, people like us who were not part of that celebrity L.A. scene, you know, like Dion Warwick knew everybody in the room basically you know and and a lot of these people knew they all knew each other right but we were we were outsiders really and and you know it, but when but when we met them when you had your chance to go into yourself to go introduce yourself to diana ross as huey lewis huey lewis and the news drummer she go oh my god i love you guys you know and it was, you know, it, was a, it was just a big everybody loved everybody else you know it was that kind of night Merle Haggard was uh, standing right to our left. 
And um, and he was, Merle was a little grumpy that night. And he was, Is it, anybody know where I can get a beer? <laughs> I can get a beer around here. And they didn't want anybody, they, they didn't want any any alcohol in the studio. So he couldn't bring yeah. it in the studio. So <laughs> he was bombing. So, so uh, he says, I, and somebody said, I don't know what kind of beer you drink. He says, he says, no, I just have a Budweiser. And the guy and, and whoever asked him went, oh, yeah, that, that stuff doesn't taste very good. Let's see if I can find you something better. He says, it's not the taste I like. It's the effect I'm after. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Duh. And so now we do a couple of takes of the chorus and we're looking around and all of a sudden Merle's gone. Merle's gone. Merle splits and never comes back. He bailed. Budweiser he, uh, time. He bailed. <laughs> Did a couple of takes and that was He's it. He's going to get him a Budweiser. Bye. That's right. <laughs> Priorities. You should have had a six pack back there. Come on now. Yeah, that's right. You got to be. You got to be prepared. Man. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that's super cool. Yeah, you know, there's, there's very, very. Uh, there's a lot of stories like that, you know. And that that was that was just an amazing, amazing night. I, I, you know, Life Magazine. I'm on the cover of Life Magazine. They have a picture of the chorus, right? And I have that framed in my office in my house. Oh, cool. Yeah. So obviously the rest of the eighties and, uh, and, and, uh, we don't want to keep you too long, but tell us about the, the album you guys put out last year, weather. We released an album last year, weather, uh, because it just made sense. We'd done sports. We'd done four, which had the golf connotation. Um, we, and we hadn't put out a record since 2001. So we said weather and the cover is, taken uh out by the golden gate bridge uh and on a very foggy looks pretty cold it, it was pretty chilly that day and we're all kind of bundled up and it's you know and it's kind of bad weather and it's it, it was it was significant to us because we're going we're the band's going through a patch of rough weather you know yeah with huey's with huey's uh hearing issue so we just thought it made sense to name it that Okay. And uh, the songs we, we've been working on for a long time. One of the songs, Her Love is Killing Me, we have recorded before. We recorded it for our Plan B album 20 years ago. In a, and we'd recorded it, demoed it up a couple of different ways, recorded it in a proper studio a couple of different ways, never got it right, never got it to the point where we wanted to release it. And... Um, Finally got a Johnny finally got a good horn arrangement that we liked and we cut it again and it and it just worked this time. So we put that one out. The first single was a song called While We're Young, which was um, written by our bass player, John Pierce. Actually, he had a funny little demo of. Of all the parts. Um, and, ba and, and basically everything you hear is his demo. I, I didn't play note one on that. It's his little drum machine. I, I, I had nothing to do. That's the only Huey Lewis and the News song ever released that I had zero to do with. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, uh, I don't. I didn't even sing on it. Well, actually, there's another one. There's that new mashup with uh, Metallica. You're not on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I am. <laughs> Not to bring it up again. Well, uh, that's me. That's me playing drums. It might be Lars. Might be Lars in the video, but that's me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll uh, hopefully yeah, reconnect. You, you, you guys yeah. too. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, Bill. Great. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Had a, had a ball. Yeah, we'll talk. Bye bye. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. See ya. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.